Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you're listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us from Richmond, Virginia, is an old friend of mine, Mr. Mike Reiser. Among many, many, many things he can do, he's a multifaceted man, but I'll gloss over an extraordinary life and say that he was once a part of law enforcement, um, working, I believe, Charlottesville. And then uh, he'll correct me if I'm wrong. And then now he is currently an attorney working for the IRS, but he works in a very important investigations unit, I believe. So again, he's going to clarify all this for me because he's such a close friend that I uh, thought I knew everything about him and we'll find out. So without further ado, Mr. Mike Reiser, how are you? Oh, I'm doing absolutely great. That's right. I did work for the most notorious police department in America, Charlottesville. Not at the time that disaster happened, though. That was years later. (laughs) Awesome. And that is important, I think, to say so. Um, Um, And I'm going to ask you the same requisite question I ask everyone, which is how old are you, where did you grow up, and uh, what generation, if any, do you believe you are a member of? I'm 37 years old now, and I grew up bouncing from place to place. Started life in Washington, D.C., spent some time as a wee little one in places like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Saudi Arabia before finally becoming a teenager in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I am definitely a millennial. I am proud that I cannot afford a house due to purchases of toast. Everything I do is another nail in a boomer's coffin and nails on a chalkboard to them. And that gives me great satisfaction, glee, and joy. I'm also scared of the Zoomers coming behind me. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Well, since I don't think that many Zoomers listen to this, that might not be uh, troublesome for us. But for real, uh, that was a great answer, and I loved it, and I expect a lot of great answers today. And so I'm actually going to jump into the most important question we ask on the show, and then I'm going to work around from your answer for that. So currently today, it's uh, January 12th, 2022. Uh, What do you think happens when we die, specifically yourself? I can't even pretend to be original on this one time. There's a brilliant musician I love, this guy named Hamill on Trial. His shows are just amazing. One man with a guitar. He sounds like Bill Hicks, if Bill Hicks were a punk rocker. And uh, one time I was watching Hamill on Trial live, and he tells jokes in between the songs. One of them he said was, uh, I think when you die, there's this thing called a hole and they put you in it. That's great. And I agree with that, man. Cool. Very cool. And uh, I asked you specifically how you felt today. And I'm curious, has that always been your take or was there ever a point in your life where you thought otherwise? You know, when you're a little kid, you like believe in Santa Claus and all those things and other stuff. So, yeah, there was probably a time when I wasn't like a jaded adult who like, you know, believed in some sort of stylized vision of heaven or whatever but uh yeah no not for a long time and actually that's the exact thread i wanted to pull for most of this interview um in a pleasant way which is the thread of why are you jaded slash are you even jaded because as all of your close friends know and all of your close enemies know um you're not really jaded uh most of us don't think that however i'm not going to tell you what you are i'm going to tell you about my perception of you so i'm curious what is a first moment in your memory of yourself where you feel you were perhaps a little jaded or the first moment where you stopped with the Santa Claus believing attitude? Probably the first times as a young policeman on the beat, seeing my first couple of homicides, first couple of suicides, and even like the old guy who dies in a chair, classic sort of police call. Um, 
it takes a lot of the mystery out of it at that point. You know, there is no moment where a soul ascends. It's it's just meat. Wow. Okay, cool. So it was like much, much later in life. Um, how old were you? Just so our audience knows when you became a police officer. I started on the job at 22. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And that's extremely young. Um, so actually let's talk a little bit about the motivation to do that because this podcast is a lot of exploring people's morality. So, um, I don't care about our audience's perspective on law enforcement, not one bit. Um, I know my perspective is I respect the law and those who follow the law. And there's a lot of people who don't. So even if law enforcement has problems, I more than understand why at the age of 22, you would have joined the police force. I'm more curious though, what your decision-making process was. Um, were you on the way to a different career? Was that always your intention? Yeah, it was always kind of my goal. I've always been sort of fascinated by the corners of human experience that like we don't get to see every day that don't get documented. Back in the 90s, you could turn on your television and watch these stereotypical families in their beautiful houses on these totally make-believe silly shows. But it didn't jibe with what I would see when I would drive down the street. There'd be street corners that had dudes hanging out on them, homeless guys, guys down on their luck. Sometimes my dad would stop and we'd give a hitchhiker a ride. And I just wanted to explore that world. But I also kind of wanted it to be a one-way street that I could turn off whenever I wanted. Oh, cool. That's a good way to describe it. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, I, because your life is actually like, and I'm, I'm saying this really, really honestly, it's pretty extraordinary. You've done a lot of things, and I want to get into all of them. So uh, I'm, I'm probably going to come back to your career in law enforcement. But to, syno uh, to give us a little bit of a synopsis, I kind of have like a softball question for you. What would be the thing that made you the most jaded. You don't need to be specific if you don't want to be, um, and please be as specific as you feel like being. And then also, though, to counter that, what would be the thing about it that actually softened you the most? Uh, the thing that softened me the most and the thing that made me the hardest and most jaded about all this stuff was basically uh, in law enforcement, sometimes the wrong people get shot and die. Not that anybody ever deserves to get shot and die or whatever, but sometimes, you know, just there's a victim who wasn't doing anything wrong other than living their life. And uh, I went to one of those calls one time where a robbery occurred and a uh, child was killed in the process of this robbery. And to me, that was the most unfair and just made me think, wow, there really isn't a point to this. But you know what? That kid had a family that loved him a lot. He had another brother and the dad just wanted to be strong for the other brother. Wow, that is... Um, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So yeah, so life does continue and there is a point. Mm -hmm. And, um, let's see, I met you at Pitt, the university of Pittsburgh in, um, I think I met you in like 2000, maybe 2001. Um, but, uh, we're a couple years apart, but I remember you back then. And I remember you as like a guy who dyed his hair and listened to like alt music and like alternative and like punk. And like, I mean, you were and are a, a pretty cool guy. Um, I'm curious, like that, side of you was that dormant until college or was that a lot of your youth and what i mean specifically is is that kind of like it's not anti-authority but it's certainly not siding with authority yeah no i'm still a firm believer in questioning authority and always was even at that time uh there's stuff that's not ideal or perfect that you're asked to do as a police officer sometimes you have to do it other times you can ignore it and that's the best part and, and so what about growing up though before you were a police officer like were you anti-authority and questioning authority like from a very young age or did you have like a switch yeah i had parents who believed it was important to question authority but also to respect it and work within the bounds of it because questioning it isn't going to get you anything other than a bunch of questions uh but if you try to work on answering those we can probably all come out with something a little bit better at the end of the day cool and uh Let's see, you grew up in, did you say Virginia Beach? Uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, okay, Charlottesville, sorry. Um, so that's like 
not too close to Pittsburgh. So was was Pittsburgh like a natural choice for you? Was it academic? Like what brought you to that region of the world? So I didn't take things very, very seriously. I still don't. I have no interest in ever doing that. Uh, I was chilling right before college applications were due. Um, and I saw this movie called Wonder Boys about a writing program. And somebody I saw it with was like, yeah, man, that's like University of Pittsburgh that that's about. So I was like, yeah, I'll try that. That'll be cool. I'll be able to like live in a kooky house with Michael Douglas and bang Katie Holmes. Didn't happen, guys. Movies aren't real. <laughs> awesome. And actually, that's a weird coincidence because when I was in high school, I read The Mysteries of Pittsburgh in 1997. And two years later, I applied to Pitt because Michael Chabon, the same author of The Wonder Boys, had written that. And I liked his descriptions of Pitt. So that's pretty funny. Um, and uh, when you got to Pitt, and also it's pretty similar that we both applied at the very, very last minute to colleges um, because of our careful, st uh, studious nature. Now, I mean, uh, you say you, you – I'm trying to, to think of like what order to introduce things in. Okay, so after you were a police officer, you went to Michigan Law, which is not exactly like a small achievement. Um, it's one of the best and most respected law departments of any country, let alone in the United States. Um, and so – I can see the link between being a police officer and then applying to be a lawyer, but, uh, or I'm sorry, to go to law school rather. Was, was that something you had considered ever before in your life being, um, in the field of law or was it something that came out of law enforcement? Yeah, it was a sort of a sudden departure and a turn. And, and first of all, don't flatter me too much. Back in the day when I went to law school, it was at the height of what they called the law school scam. There were professors writing books about this. If you had a, a pulse, all you had to do was be able to pass a credit check and you could get into the country's best law schools in that era. So I'm not like cream of the crop or anything. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just a, a weird little departure. I remember I was chilling at my house one time. I was like super duper tired from doing police work because it requires a lot of late nights, a lot of overnights, weird times, and just sort of not feeling it at the moment and looking at a long schedule of not feeling it of the days coming up scheduled for too many shifts, etc. And I was sitting there was playing some Grand Theft Auto on my PlayStation 2, so that'll probably appropriately date this story. And, you know, I just decided uh, in that moment, but do something else. And then I was like, how can I make a bunch of money? So I decided to go to law school, which again, guys, don't go to a college because you think you're going to get to ban Katie Holmes. Don't go to law school if you think you're going to make money. You're not. You're going to lose money, a lot of money. Oh, man. <laughs> We're approaching like $300,000 in debt now. Catastrophes. Um, but anyway, uh, that said, so that's what I decided I was going to do. And then, like like I said, life just keeps throwing you curveballs. Yeah, and so the next curveball was you graduate from law school, which I will admit that you went at the height of everything you said and all that. I still think it's a hell of an achievement to not only get into any law school, but to graduate and pass a bar. So you did graduate. You did pass a bar. Was your very first job uh, working for the IRS? Yes, Things sort of worked out. Uh, I tried to get on with like cor corporate firms and things like that, uh, which again, guys, not a great idea. Don't do what any of my suggestions for your life. Um, they're all bad. And uh, figured I would go and like get worked like crazy, bill my 3,000 hours a year, develop a cocaine habit and a weight problem. And uh, then just at some point, I, I don't know, I guess dip and go surf or something. But you know, life keeps you guessing. Um, so yeah, so I ended up uh, finding my way into something that I actually really, really enjoy that is law enforcement related. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Cool. So uh, hold off on the why it's fun part. But uh, how is it rewarding? It's rewarding in the way that uh, it suits sort of my skill set. Um, I'm a person who likes to be able to write 
And I also like to be able to like solve mysteries, catch bad guys, et cetera, and restore a little bit of order to the universe. And the kind of work that I get to do there is like that in police work. It's just, it's on a much bigger scale with very different kinds of puzzles to solve and a different kind of order to return. So that's why I dig it. That's very cool. That's a great answer. And I like your phrasing, restore order to the universe. So you do believe that when we die, we just go in a hole, but is there an order to the universe that, and that's a part of that order? Yeah, I think that is a natural part and a natural extension and continuance of that order. And uh, ideally in a perfect situation scenario, you'd be on a one-way road from birth to the coffin and everything would be pleasant along the way. But sometimes there's stuff that disrupts it. And sometimes those factors are completely human. And, uh, Sometimes you need somebody else to come in and just basically restore that balance and fix whatever went wrong. And that's why I like law enforcement, because, yeah, we can stand here and go a cab 12. And it's always a hoot to read these stories about cops who get fired for playing Pokemon Go on the job or whatever. But we forget at the end of the day that sometimes they do return lost children to their parents. Sometimes they are that moment of comfort for somebody who's lost a loved one. And uh, I like this because it's on a much bigger scale. And involves financially doing that. Very cool. I like all of your answers. Um, I'm I'm really curious about like your sense of what humans even are and what this order to the universe is. So I'm going to keep kind of trying to ask questions about that for a little bit at least. Um, so what? Uh, you know, I like the way you said like you're born and you accelerate to the coffin. Now, whether or not humanity or otherwise shifts and juggles that direct path, I'm more curious about the path that that path is a part of. So do you believe like in the same kind of idea of like the big bang, for example, which is like things just exploding outward. Um, do you believe in any sort of like already stated philosophy about the origin of the universe and humans? Oh, I'm not even smart enough to pretend that I can operate on that level. I'm barely above a caveman banging rocks together, but I do trust science people who tell me a, that the big bang theory probably did happen. And B there's probably also aliens out there. So I'm just going to defer to them on that one. Um, but yeah, no, it is interesting that like every human culture has basically come up with their own origin myth. And we love still going to the multiplex to watch origin myths. I hate them. I don't think I can stand to watch Batman and his parents get murdered one more time. I don't think I can stand to watch Peter Parker's uncle get murdered one more time. Stop it. Somebody tell a different story, please. I'm begging you, God. Uh, but you know, there's a reason I think we dig those and like it's pretty universal to humans. So I get that. Yeah. And actually, uh, I'm going to go ahead and plug you as a writer. You did say that you like writing and you're a terrific writer and you've written two novels so far. And I believe that they're like semi self-published and available. So I'm going to go ahead and let you uh, offer me those links for the notes and all that. But I did want to throw that out here now and let you talk a little bit about that. Um, what does it feel like to be creative? Like you're, you're creative and I'm curious, is it fun for you? Is it fulfilling? Is it rewarding? It's the single most rewarding thing you can do. I'd urge anybody who's listening to go ahead and take up some sort of creative pursuit, whatever it is, you're probably going to suck at it and that's okay. I do. Like I said before, caveman banging rocks together is the level that I'm operating at. And you will be too for a very long time. But it's totally worth doing because, again, it allows you to sort of restore your own sense of order and calm to your own day. Uh, and you get to build something cool piece by piece. And maybe it comes together. Maybe it doesn't. But at least you learn a bunch of stuff along the way. So I think that's awesome. I'm also a big fan of creating the kind of art that you want to have in the world that there's not enough of. So whatever it is you like, I mean, if you really, really want to like tell the Peter Parker uncle murder story one more time, go for it. I'm not going to stop you. I'll cheer you on. But 
put whatever you want that isn't out there into the world. And it's a super rad experience. And I believe in doing it for the the fun. So I'm happy to share those links to those if anybody bothers to download them. Uh, I think the wave of the future is like people quietly passing PDFs around the internet rather than like walking into a Barnes and Noble. So we'll see if I'm right on that one. That's cool. And I definitely like this idea that tons of people are creating and many people are consuming, but we're all not just being fed like three different articles of consumption. So I like to, you know, advertise like that you're talented and your books can be available. So again, for our audience, that'll be there. But on the same kind of um, in the same realm of thinking, I'm kind of curious about like the softer side of like your creativity and your sense of like art and stuff. So uh, d are you like a, an avid consumer of art? And, I, and I'm using art like by the truest sense, just like anything that is considered art. And and what does art do for you, like emotionally and otherwise? For me, absolutely. I love it. I firmly believe you can't write without reading a ton of books. Imagine trying to go be a painter and like never having seen a painting before. Ridiculous. But yeah, no, to me, like the best and coolest thing that art can do is it can change the person who consumes it. And whether that becomes like a little tempest in a teacup of just changing your mood or just changing your life on the grand scheme of things, I think that's rad. Like that's massively powerful and awesome. Um, and yeah, I definitely consume art all the time in many, many forms. Uh, you mentioned it. I'm a big music fan. I will listen to whatever demo tape you've got out there and again, cheer you on for it. Um, I also love the visual arts as well. I've got a Marsden Hartley reproduction that hangs on my wall. It's a painting of a German officer from 1917. And I like to look at it and be reminded of the backstory of this painting. Marsden Hartley was an American artist who went over to Europe and fell in love with a German ace. His ace got killed in World War I, and he painted the objects left behind. And you can look at this painting and just breathe in the loss. And I think that's so cool and so epic. And I want to be able to do that for people too. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, and actually you just reminded me that I used to be a musician and I would record my own albums and just give them out for free to all my friends. And you were like one of the only friends that I gave them to who like got back to me with like a full critique of the album and had obviously listened to it. And so I just want to say thank you again, that you are really like a very supporting friend. Um, I always have been. I have one of those albums right here in the room with me actually. <laughs> That's hilarious. Let's not play that. An old CDR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, very cool. And so kind of um, moving in the same direction, I'm, I'm just trying to get in touch with like this other side of you that I, I know exists, but I want to bring out for people who don't know you because I think it's very inspiring. Um, so what what is a moment in life now at your current age that you can look back at? And at the time it was sucky. It was crappy. It was like considered a, a bad event, but it like pushed you in some direction you didn't see coming and now you're very grateful for? Oh, uh, I would probably actually choose going to law school. It was a miserable, terrible, horrible experience. The entire place was cold. It felt hopeless. You're going to have to return the clock to a different era. Remember the Great Recession? You can watch movies about this thing, like the big short of that era. Like, you know, it was like not quite to bankers jumping out of windows, but almost. Um, and that was the environment I was going into the school in. And every day you'd watch some kid walk through the law quad, which is what they called their campus up there. And this kid would like take their phone out of their pocket because it was ringing, pick it up and go, oh, hello, partner. It's so nice to hear from you at Big Firm in Los Angeles. Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Uh, what, you mean my offer is gone? Uh, ah, and then there would just be tears, the waterworks, everything. I mean, like if you're a sadist, there's probably no better place in the world to just chill and just watch people's meltdowns than that point in time. 
Um, and so it was bleak and hopeless. And so I started realizing I'd made a terrible mistake and was kind of like, oh, no, what am I doing? The classes sucked. The professors were mean. Things just weren't that fun. But I realized it was totally worth it because the people who were going there, so many of them were great. And I keep in touch with so many of them. And I think that's super neat, too. So, like, even in the worst circumstances, like, if you get sentenced to jail, you're going to meet interesting people. And that's cool. Wow, that's really profound. I never actually thought of that angle. When you were a police officer, you literally, literally were putting your life on the line every single day. It was your sworn duty that you might actually get shot at, you might get hurt and die in the line of duty. So that's first and foremost why I would respect anyone who makes that decision initially. Um, and my question is, now that you're out of law enforcement, it's been many years, would you still lay down and die for anyone? Or like, do you have like a, a different perspective of that? Yeah, I think when you're very, very young, um, it's super easy to never, ever think about this. Like mortality is not a real concept. You can wrap your brain around when you feel completely invincible. But the first time you get a twinge in your back, man, you start thinking about it. Um, but I think the answer is absolutely yes. Um, you and I have talked a lot about what's worth fighting for out here. I know you've got your philosophy on it. I've got mine. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, upholding this apparatus that ties us all together and gives us the high quality lives that gives us the beautiful moments with our families and our friends and the spaces where we get to chill and create art is worth fighting for. So yeah, absolutely. If that were at threat of peril, yeah, I'd stand up for a stranger for that. Very cool. And um, how is your sense of mortality influenced by being a police officer and what what would you like both caution someone about and also encourage them with if they had like a similar attitude that you had at 22? Yeah, it's super weird. Cause like it doesn't dawn in it until retrospect. And I think about some of the stuff that we were doing that could have gone South for ourselves and others at the time. And we were fortunate that it didn't the stuff like emergency response driving, uh, the stuff like, you know, heading into a large disorder where people are fighting each other, where there's going to be weapons present. Uh, and it's truly a there but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. And I think like now it's it's sort of a trip to look back on it because like that early human brain that I had as just like a dumb kid couldn't even conceptualize the millions of ways any of this stuff could go bad. But that's also a good thing because you're not paralyzed. So my advice would be to do it young, make sure everything that you do counts and build something better with each day. And, uh, yeah. And then get out when you start really worrying about it. Cool. That's great advice. Um, we got a little bit of room for a couple more questions. The last question I'm going to ask you about law enforcement is a peaceful and unifying question, because obviously, as you said, you know, me, what would you say to both sides on the current, like argument about law enforcement that could possibly bring them together? So don't speak to one side, just what do you think would unify both sides right now in America specifically? Oh, uh, turn off your internet. Because nothing is ever clear and nothing is ever that simple in real life. Um, to have a society, we're going to have to make compromises. And unfortunately, sometimes some bros are going to get crushed with those compromises so that other bros can have like a really good time. And if we're doing it right, more bros are going to be having a good time than bros having a bad time. So I think that would be my uh, suggestion to everybody is just like stop. There isn't an absolute on any of this stuff. It's a balance that we as a species haven't figured out and we keep working on. 
every single day. You can't wave a magic wand and make the cops go away because everybody's life isn't going to get better. It's the opposite. You can't flood so many cops into every single city that people are watched 24-7 when they leave their houses because that's also not going to make anybody's life better. Uh, there's just You're going to have to work on continually trying to find that balance and working to build something better. Cool. Very, very cool. And thank you for sharing all that. And thank you for getting personal on my podcast and really opening up about all this stuff. Um, I got a little bit more time, so I'm going to ask you a final question about your current um, line of work, and then I'm probably just going to open the floor for you to rant, rave, and let the internet know what you think of uh, life. But before we get into that exciting moment, what in your current job you work Okay, so I'm going to explain what I think you do for a living. You work for the IRS and you work for a department where you get to investigate fraud through via like taxation and stuff. But meanwhile, it's kind of like a criminal's investigation. And so in my very short caveman mind, you catch bad guys and you catch like legitimate bad guys. So if you're allowed to share any stories, what is one story you would like to share that I'm asking you personally? You are not a braggart, but I want you to kind of brag. Like what's a cool thing you've done at this current occupation? Oh, I haven't done anything personally. And uh, like I'm I'm a boring attorney. Uh, so it's like my job to say no to like the really cool, great, wild ideas that are probably going to like be the most successful at catching people. But uh, that said, you know, the important thing that we do is make sure that everybody's constitutional liberties are respected. Uh and so I guess I would just say that, like, we have a huge press file out there. There's press releases that the agency does every day about the kinds of cases that everybody's working on. It is really a team effort. And uh, I think one of the cool things is, like, being able to, like, go ahead because we always get so down on government. And I think it's, like, really more of the problem is that we're, like, really down on a lot of our politicians that we forget that there's all these people inside the government who are humans just like you and me who go home to the same kind of houses that you guys live in. And they're all working very, very hard on our behalf. And I think that to me is the raddest and coolest thing that is going on. That's very cool. And so uh, can you just like, for my satisfaction, uh, name a sector of criminals that you have been involved in a team and gotten? Sure, sure. Happy to share. So, you know, it's it's no no secret that the IRS is actively investigating tax cheats and tax frauds out there. Um, and we're also actively investigating all manner of money laundering, uh, particularly the new frontier of it on the dark web, the use of cryptocurrencies and NFTs to launder money. And the goal is to put a stop to the underlying criminal activity that is behind the generation of those profits um, that cause the money laundering activity to occur. The stuff that's like sort of like the sale of child exploitation material on the dark web and the other nastiness that humans unfortunately can come up with too because we're not all good all the time and that everybody is the wonderful and amazing mike riser who i wanted you to meet um he has to go somewhere soon so i have to end this interview way earlier than i would naturally want to i'm sure he and i no first of all we will talk for hours at some point in the future but please mike before you leave us and go to your awesome writing class um i would love it if you would just tell uh our fans and the people who listen to the show what you think about the universe and life and just whatever you want to say, you have the floor. Sure. Um, <laughs> at the risk of sounding like an internet meme, I think the most important thing we can all do from time to time is to touch grass and connect with the people around us. Um, it sounds sappy and everything, but it's important to remember why we do all the stuff that we do. It's getting harder and harder every single day to do that with the internet going the way that it is with everybody or not everybody, but a lot of people, stuck in their own little work from home bubbles due to 
the ongoing pandemic situation. Uh, and it's just important to realize to take that sort of inventory every day and put in the work and think about the stuff that's totally worth doing. Because I think at the end of the day, you are just going to go in a hole and it's up to you whether you just want to just chill and just go into that hole and let it let it do what it do. But I think the much better approach is to go happily into the hole. Having said, you know, I did a lot here. I met a lot of cool people. I had a lot of cool adventures. Things were pretty rad. Wow, that was awesome. Mike Reiser, currently from Richmond, Virginia. Thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Also, thank you for accepting my challenge to use the word coffin in the actual podcast and winning that challenge. Um, (laughs) You knew it was coming. (laughs) Yeah, you're a wonderful human. You're a wonderful friend. And I really, truly thank you. And I also thank you for your myriad levels of service for humanity and all of us on Earth. And for those of you listening at home, thank you again for listening. This has been another episode of Coffin Talk Interviews with a Living. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon.